Hi there, and thank you so much for tuning in to Asking for a Friend, a podcast that covers all those topics relating to sex, intimacy, and relationships that you might feel a little too embarrassed to ask about. I'm your host, Katrina Buffard, and I'm a clinical sexologist, psychotherapist, and sexuality researcher. Just a warning, this podcast may contain conversations of a sexual nature, and so if there are little ones around, it's best for you to turn off and listen later. This episode is sponsored by Desire, South Africa's leading sexual health and wellness store. Very sneaky little discount. Stay tuned to the end of the episode. What kind of love do you have for one another as partners? And what are your expectations of love and your partner? Dr. Sara Nasazade is a social psychologist and global thought leader in the fields of couples counseling, cross-cultural fluency, diversity and inclusion. She has numerous awards and accolades, is a respected author of both academic and general books and papers, and is a trusted expert for global media, including for the BBC, CNN and the like. She's also someone I look up to and respect hugely in our field. She's got extensive experience researching and working with couples to overcome challenges in love and sex that they bring into her therapy room. Sarah, it's such a pleasure to be able to speak to you and knowing how how extensive your experience is in this topic and in this field meant that you were the only person I wanted to chat to about this. Um, and I am obviously so, so grateful for technology and the fact that I can speak to you. It's, I mean, it's seven o'clock in the evening here in South Africa. I know it's just gone nine o'clock in the morning there in California. Um, and I'm really thrilled to, to have you on the podcast today. Of course, it's a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to be in conversation with you. Uh, well, you know, I, I saw you a year ago. We actually met, we met actually a year ago for the first time in person. We, we'd been speaking for quite some time prior to that. And at this, the World Association of Sexual Health Conference uh, in Mexico City last year, um, you gave in some really fascinating, interesting workshops on the topic of love. And I mean, I guess the very first question I want to ask you is what, what got you into exploring this topic? It's vast. What was it about this topic that really pulled you into it? Ah, that's a very good question. To be honest with you, I feel like because I felt it's so underserved, it's abused, it's overused, it's underserved. So I felt like as a person who works with people who are pursuing love um, and who are heartbroken by love, for love, in the name of love, I felt like I had to take it on um, to at least start to understand it for myself so that I can help the people who come to me for help. So that would be, yeah, that would be a short answer to that. And how long have you been working with couples, Sarah? Well, almost 20 years now. Wow. So two, two, nearly two decades of experience. And, and I guess we're going to delve into it, but has love changed in those two decades that you've been working with couples? Well, it really depends. You see, um, the thing is, because as you know, I work across the world. And so this is one privilege that I really don't take lightly. 
because the word that is used to describe love and different forms of love, the way that is perceived and received by different people is quite different across culture. And um, the more you study, the more you realize that there is no one word that can describe what people mean. Um, so one of the things that I've actually done for my own understanding of what is going on here, and when people say, I'm in love, I love somebody, I don't love somebody, I really wanted to first understand what they're talking about, to be able to explore further. So one of the things that I've done, I went back to the Western thinking, because uh, as you know, I love philosophy. Uh, so I went back and I read about what are the origins of this word love and the way it was used in literature, in poetry, in um, even politics. So one of the prominent ways that shaped our way of thinking, especially in the Western world, is um, those different types of loves that were introduced in old Greek. Um, and if you don't mind, I would like to list them here because there's a purpose behind it. Of course. So one is philia, which is the affectionate love. The other one is pragma, enduring love. The storage, which is familial love. That's sort of friendship love. Eros, which is the romantic love. Ludus, which is playful love, mania, obsessive love. And plautea, if I can pronounce the Greek side of it right, self-love and agape, which is the selfless love. So for the couples who would sit in front of me with their heart broken, or often I have couples come to me and say that, I, you know, we really deeply love each other, but we're not in love with each other. I wanted to see what that means, how that feels, because there were many of us in the room and each of us thought differently about this. And also considering my own background coming from Iran, um, the concept of love first and foremost was taught to me through Sufism, through spiritual love, through love is something that exists. You just need to cultivate it and put it into different shapes and forms for different people around you. Um, so it was kind of ingrained in us to know that when we say love, we mean different things for different people. Um, and then over a period of time, I try to tease out to see when I work with couples, what is it that they're, they're specifically talking about and what is it that they're referring to? For example, I would ask them a question. I would put this list in front of them, this um, list of Greek definition of love. And I would say, which one do you think you still have for each other? And which one do you think you don't or you never had for each other, never felt for each other? I found it incredibly helpful because it was hopeful for them. So if they felt like, oh my God, so now that we don't love each other anymore, quote unquote, love each other anymore, then we have to go separate ways. But then when you put this list in front of them, they realize that out of eight forms described, they, have, they still have seven forms. And only for example, Eros is missing or Ludus is missing. Then that gave them a chance to go back and kind of utilize other forms of love that they have for one another and then preserve those so that they won't eliminate completely the other person from their lives and maybe their relationship changed maybe they didn't want to be married uh, or in romantic love anymore but there were other relationships loving relationships that they could still cultivate uh, within that I don't know if you want me to 
describe how I came up with the ninth form of love that I call imagined love. I, I would be very interested in it. Yes, it was the it was one of the workshops you gave in Mexico City, and I found it really fascinating. And actually, if I can, to read a little extract from your your website that kind of speaks to this very stereotypical expectation that we have around a relationship progression um, before we get there. You said on your website, finally, it is important to note that there also exists a very fixed understanding of the material progression of a romantic relationship. First, two people meet, expected to spend a lot of time together and fall in love. At this point, the couple is expected to have high preoccupation with one another. They should be spending all their time together and they become one soul in two bodies. This is what you call submergent love. And then, obviously cultural and religiously permitting, they move in together. And most polls indicate that this linear progression towards marriage remains overwhelmingly powerful, both in practice and ideology. Now, the reason that I wanted to bring that up just before you spoke about emergent love is because that's what we kind of think of as the stock standard instruction manual when it comes to relationships. And maybe I'll, I'll, I'll reflect on your workshop in, in, um, in, that you gave in Mexico and your work on emergent love in a moment, but that's what a lot of couples kind of expect to happen. Is that right? That is very true, especially um, initially when you asked me what changed in the past two decades since I started my work, that's what is changing. Initially, uh, when I started in this, if this, was, this mentality was mainly in Western Europe and Northern America, but now more and more you will see that the ideal type of relationship, this submergent love, um, is being projected in the rest of the world as well. So you will see that, for example, I was working in Pakistan a while back and I, uh, and I was talking to people, um, they were talking about the same thing, that if we don't love somebody, we shouldn't marry them. If we don't, if you're not in love with somebody and marry, marry them, it feels like a calculative move. And God forbid, if I ever talked about this in somewhere in England or in uh, United States, because people looked at me and said, well, are you talking about arranged marriages? Are you trying to take away our choices here? Are you, take, uh, are you going to take away all those movements that happened that mobilized women and gave them permission? Um, and my answer is absolutely not. Because one thing that we should realize here is, first of all, we're not talking about men and women only here. We're talking about different relationship orientations, different marriage orientations these days. And it's not only between men and women, as we know. You know, we might agree with it, we might not agree with it, but this is what is happening, right? Mm. So that is one point. The other one that is usually changing is... Um, this perception of love that if you talk about, uh, well, let me see if uh, the person has the intelligent level that I'm looking for, the uh, financial comfort level that I'm looking for, the family of origin that I'm looking for, the um, social circles that I'm looking for, and I would like to be a part of in, in a partner, in a husband, in a wife, in a, you know, a spouse. Um, then people would look at you as if like, well, but this is manipulative, this is calculative, it's frowned upon, right? And I completely appreciate, I really have deep appreciation for our history, um, 
like the way that we became what we became, at least in the United States, that initially marriages were just um, a way of getting out of hell, you know, your parents' home, or for example, to find some financial independency, some voice of your own, some, um, you know, all above. And then little by little, as women's movement happened, women's movement happened, contraceptives um, became available. So there's a history that um, Stephanie Cohn actually writes beautifully about it in her book uh, as how we became to view marriages as they are these days, right? So I'm not gonna take that away. Uh, I mean, I'm in no position to do that, but all I'm arguing here is, again, on the website, if people have interest to have a look, I have a diagram, simple diagram of a triangle. If you imagine the triangle is standing on its tip, it's quite wobbly and they put love at that bottom. And then they say, just fall in love with each other. Love is all you need, the rest will follow. Well, I'm sorry to tell you that many of my couples who end up in my office, that didn't happen to them. And that kills me, that pains me to sit there with their pain because they were promised something that could almost never happen. Um, they're intellectually not compatible. They don't have shared vision. Their thinking style is not compatible. Their financial attitude is not compatible. Their personalities are not compatible for God's sake. So, and then they just come together just because of chemical reaction that they had to each other. And by the way, that chemical reaction also has a component of um, social construction to it, which we often don't talk about. We don't talk about um, how socially constructed the construct uh, of attraction is. We often talk about chemistry when we talk about uh, when two people get together, but there is a reason that we are attracted to a person and we are not attracted to the other person beside them. So these are the discourses that I just wanted to bring up and kind of literally turn love on its head. And um, the proposed model that I had here was if the submergent love is to two people meeting and then getting completely emerged with each other and go to the submerged, a submergent um, point, uh, submergent love, um, they become one, they finish each other's sentences, you know, whatnot. Um, I wanted to actually tip that over uh, with that triangle. Imagine that the base now is on the ground, firmly on the ground, and then the foundations are there. Then the entity that emerges on top is the love, is that relationship that they are going to shape with each other. So that is the whole kind of idea behind it. So that's so interesting because the way that you describe, you know, in the submergent model, the traditional model is that where love is on the bottom of that triangle and the tip is the bottom of the triangle, it's very unstable and it's it's fragile, I think. You know, you, you spoke to the idea of a fragile foundation. And yet in your in your model of emergent love, it's it's evident that the, the foundation is far more solid. And, you know, what we know is that people are physically or sexually attracted to one another first and foremost, usually. Um, there's a the matching hypothesis, I think, if you know much about that. It's where we are attracted to somebody who we feel is of an equal level of attraction to ourselves. 
And I think what was really fascinating there is how you spoke, uh, you just touched on briefly that attraction is a social construct. I mean, this sounds like a whole research area in itself, um, but that actually through each of these different components of developing a relationship with somebody and getting to know somebody, love emerges, which is it makes so much sense now. And it made so much sense to me when I heard you speak about this last year at the conference. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually glad that, um, well, obviously you have a lot of studies done, you know, in this regard as well. So it might not kind of shock you. You see that it makes sense and you kind of absorb it. But the reactions that I get, I, um, I don't know if, well, you were there in Mexico, so you saw people's reactions. Some people were clapping, some people were crying, some people came to me after said, oh my God, I didn't, I couldn't imagine that, you know, if I ever um, followed this rule, I wouldn't be here, or um, so many personal stories shared, and that is the reaction that I often get, and it's very interesting when I, it depends where I give this talk, if I'm talking about this in a culture that has a base in this that you really need to be compatible in several areas for that love, enduring love um, to emerge, um, they're just not in agreement. But when I give this talk in uh, the presence of audience that uh, they've been told that you know love is the only thing that you need to make a relationship sustainable and satisfying and even thriving, um, it, this could really shake them to their core because that is completely against whatever that they grew up with and whatever that they believe in. Um, and I hear a lot um, from people about that. Wow. So, you know, this is the deconstructing love and putting it back together um, from different angle. And I'm hoping that this could really help free people um, from disappointments and lots of heartbreaks, unnecessary heartbreaks that they get themselves into. I hope so too. And hearing the responses that you got and, and, you know, we were an incredibly global community at, at the world association of sexual mm -hmm. health conference last year. So it would be fascinating to have known who was saying what, from what culture, what background, um, what, you know, what was the narrative around love for them? I guess there's, there's a, a definite interest in studying that perhaps so so sorry then if, if emergent love is if love is coming out of all of these different parts what for you with your nearly two decades of experience makes a great happy meaningful relationship and and I specifically want to know this from you because I get asked this question often and I only have half of the experience that you have with about a decade doing this but this is as I said you're 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 the expert on this so what do you think makes a great, happy, and meaningful relationship? Well, thank you. I think I'm as much of an expert as my clients who shared their wisdom with me, and I'm forever grateful to them. Um, you see, Katriana, one of the things that I can share with you is based on my clinical practice, but also another thing was the research that we've done, because um, clinical observation, we each might have our own lenses through which we observe what we perceive in the room. But I think uh, that was one of the reasons that actually led us to do this formal research around this. Um, so here's how it began. Uh, and then I will get to the answer to your question as what are the fundamentals. Um, 
first I went back and then you know how um, I don't know how every colleague does it so some people only take psychotherapy notes meaning that you know the reflective notes that the therapist has for their own in their room and some others take formal notes that are progress notes for their clients I take both um, and you know I take a permission from my clients as we go through the session I take notes and then through those, I read those in between sessions to reflect and then to kind of make a collage for each of my clients as well as couples to put them together. So one of the things that I've done, I went back and I found all of those notes that I had for 10 years. And then I went and picked 312 couples that worked with me personally. The duration of work I wanted to be about a year with each couple so that I could um, really claim that I know my couple. I went through my psychotherapy notes with, no, with them. And then um, through content analysis, I wanted to see if I could see any uh, common themes emerge. Um, for people who are listening, you know, there's a method in research that we call ground theory. So you start from the data first, and then you go through them enough time until nothing else is emerging. So um, I continued with that. And then I came up with certain um, aspects, uh, certain themes. So for example, sexual or physical attraction, compassion, empathy, uh, which are two different um, entities, uh, compatibility, shared vision, and respect. So these were the accounts of couples that I saw that over the years, uh, over that year that we worked together, also over the years, I could, you know, um, uh, after I've done that, I sent an email uh, to these couples and I told them that I'm, you know, I'm doing this research. So where are you with life? If you don't mind sharing with me. And um, then kind of checked back with them to see, um, to see if my observations were accurate. And then I put them together through these pillars. And then after this, after we came up with this um, kind of five components, then I teamed up um, with um, Dr. Azarmina so that we could put everything together into a form of survey um, so that we can expand it into a um, survey. And then we see if we can make these all measurable for couples. So one thing that came out of that was we measured um, different people can actually read about the research. I, I'm not going to kind of bore you here, but it's on all on the website of relationship-panoramic.com. If anybody is interested, they can just, you know, go and read about the research. But the things that came out of it, we assess for dyadic fundamentals, so the things that need to be present, non-negotiables between two people to be able to, for that love, so to speak, to emerge. The other one was individual fundamentals that people really need to do to cultivate within themselves, work on themselves uh, to be able to contribute to a thriving relationship. And which is really interesting because many people think that if they, if we assume relationship as a dance, uh, they get on the dance floor and they do it enough time um, until they learn, they master their steps. In my humble opinion, it's not going to work for many people because if you don't know the steps beforehand, if you are um, tone deaf, 
if you don't have control over your body, then you go there and you actually step all over your partner, you exhaust yourself, you frustrate them, and it's not going to go very well. So there are stretches and fundamentals that you need to work on yourself before you get to the dance floor. So you don't hurt yourself or the other person. Those are the fundamental as for individual fundamentals. And then um, we looked at the relationship outcomes. So for example, we wanted to see if there is any cause and effect, if there is any linear or any subsequent relationship between a trade that people bring individually or in uh, kind of dyadic relationship, uh, dyadic interactions uh, that would lead to the creation of better outcome in a relationship. And when I talk about relationship outcome, we are not, uh, I'm not talking about satisfying. I'm talking about thriving, one that people really feel alive. They feel full of motivation to wake up every morning and contribute to this relationship. And then, so these were the elements that we assessed for. So physical attraction was one of the fundamentals that, and I'm not talking about chemistry, I'm talking about attraction, that you're attracted to the other person, you want to be at their presence, you want to be touched by them, you want them to touch you. So this is the physical attraction, and we can get to, to that in depth, uh, because I've done a piece of work on sexual chemistry versus sexual harmony, which we can talk about. Um, so that is one aspect. The other one was a healthy financial attitude for both parties. The other one is shared vision. Where are we going? Because many couples who end up in my office again and talking about um, how disappointed they are, they kind of never checked whether they're going the same way. Um, they are looking the same way, at least the same direction. Um, so that, that was one other thing. And the other one is compassion. Compassion was a big part of um, the equation for couples who stayed together long-term, sustain a thriving relationship. So these are some of those ones that are fundamentals to any relationship uh, that wants to be thriving over time and has the capacity for love to emerge. And out of all of these, we came up with the relationship panoramic inventory that um, has 12 scales and measures, all validated, um, that you know couples can take and see where they are. One of the pain points for me is that couples therapy won't work, often won't work because, and the reason is couples get to you by the time that um, they're pretty scarred. And sometimes they even show up with open wounds from one another. Um, so in those moments, our work becomes to put the fire off. Uh, it's not really preventative work. It's not really help them cultivate their strengths and um, set them up for a successful relationship. It's just putting the fire off. And our respected colleague, Dr. Gottman, has a research to show that couples present to couples therapy seven years into the conflict. Mm -hmm. So seven years, are you kidding me? I mean, seven years is a lifetime, you know? Mm -hmm. And you are in the conflict, patterns are shaped, hurts, and, you know, dis disappointments are there. Um, so one of the reasons I thought such a measurement, such an inventory would be helpful was so that couples see what is it that they are very strong at? What is it that needs intentional attention? 
Um, so when they get their report, which is about 28, 29 pages, um, they get a very good overview of their relationship from conflict management to what shapes their identities, all of these things that we discussed. And I'm hoping that they can use it with a professional um, so that they can really work in a systematic manner um, on their relationship. And I often say before cracks, it would be really good to recognize the cracks in the relationships before they become chasms. And I hope, and I'm hoping that relationship panoramic offers that. I love that that um, that analogy of recognizing the cracks before they come become chasms because, like you, I see couples and I I use the descript use the metaphor the description of the earthquake and the earth tremors, and so mm-hmm. they may have had earth tremors along the way. And for anybody listening who can hear some rumbling in the background, it's not earth tremors; it's 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 beautiful uh, thunder that we've got at the moment as we're having a thunderstorm. But yeah, we I speak to my clients about earth tremors. Um, where the ground has been shaking a little bit unstable and then something might've happened that might've been like an earthquake where it's completely uprooted the foundations of that relationship and, and the trust that two people have shared. And then following that, there's more earth tremors. And like you, by the time they get to me and on average, that's seven years later, they're, we as the couples therapists come up, you know, they're, they're saying to us, this is our last shot. You know, we, this is our only hope sort of thing. Places a lot of responsibility onto the therapist as well, which is difficult, but it's, it's, it's really fascinating to hear how with this inventory, it's almost like a little bit of a roadmap to help couples make sense of and understand where it is they need to work the most at in their relationship. Because as you spoke about, you know, it gives people a lot of hope when they realize that it isn't hopeless. They do have a lot of love for one another, but it's different types of love. And that there perhaps are a couple of areas that they need to be really focusing on together. Because very often, you know, we get couples, especially as sex therapists, we get couples coming to see us saying, you know, we 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 love each other and we enjoy spending time together and we're great friends, but we just have no connection sexually or sex is just fizzled. Or you get the opposite where, you know, we're feeling like flatmates. We might as well be brother and sister. These are the the very common lines we hear among couples in our in our therapy rooms. And I know that if I was going through difficulty with my partner, having a roadmap to understand where that difficulty really lay in the relationship would be really useful. And I I guess that I hope that's what your couples are finding as well. Yeah. uh, Well, first of all, I really like that earthquake and uh, tremor uh, analogy. That's really, really well said. Uh, That's exactly how it feels to many couples. Um, the other aspect that you mentioned was about uh, this roadmap. I think that's extremely important for people to have a roadmap. And maybe it comes from my own bias because I feel, um, you know, I don't want to be there just to be like, for example, um, how to talk to my mother-in-law about Christmas, right? So I can tell you how to talk to your mother-in-law in Christmas, But then on the other side of it, this might happen with your friend next year. Then are you going to come to me for that again, you know, for for that question? Um, Or are you going to cultivate tools and understanding of how these dynamics, how can I handle these disagreements or sensitive context, how to navigate them? And then 
be able to apply it for, to the rest of, you know, areas of your lives. That is my intention with this. Like often I tell people, you know, when you come to me and you ask me to help you to shake hands, you know, to do the behavior, to, to do a better relationship, it's going to just last for so long. But if you learn how to be in a relationship, how to shake hand while you mean it, how you are fully present with the other person, how your, your hand is not sweaty out of nervousness, then we did a good job. Then you're set for life. And I think we really need to switch our mentality from relationship literacy to relationship fluency and proficiency. And I think this roadmap will offer that. And one of the things that I was thinking to do is um, I'm going to create a couple's course uh, I don't think everybody has the time, means, or interest um, to see a couple's therapist, you know? Um, and on that note, I really want people to have access to resources that, you know, as a couple, they will go in, they do the course together, which is a systematic course addressing all of these 12 skills in relationship panoramic. Uh, what it does to me is that, yes, the roadmap, second, intentional curriculum for them. So over the next 12 months, we are going to work on one of these scales, one, you know, one month at a time until it becomes second nature. So it's not that reading a book and putting it aside. It's really um, acquiring the literacy and the proficiency, also practicing the fluency. And to do that, you need shared language when people are exposed to um, different material together, the couples, it's so important. So for example, listening to a podcast, if you're listening to this, share it with your partner, share it with your best friend that um, is going to be your confidant when you are in a moment of disagreement or distress, because it's really important to get what the other person is talking about. Creating that shared language is so important. So um, that's why I think it's really that phrase that you use, roadmap, that really resonates with me as well. Um, both for the provider, if colleagues want to use this and then walk their couples through a systematic path to the thriving spot, you know, thriving space, um, or for the couples themselves that they can, you know, take the, take the um, inventory and really pinpoint the areas that they need to work on. I, I almost feel what you were saying about this course you want to develop um, so that couples could have the means and access to, to, to work through difficulties they face in their relationship. It's kind of like learning a language. It's all good and well to have the theory, but unless you're actually speaking it on a day-to-day -day basis, you're not, as an adult anyway, you're not going to become fluent in it. And for me, sex, uh, sex and, and relationships are hard work. It is like learning a language. And a, a colleague of mine has a beautiful, she describes it beautifully, she, Kate Moyle. She says that sex is a language that we've never been taught how to speak. And I think relationships are the same. I, I, I use the standard opening line in a lot of the workshops that I give where, you know, if, if at school, instead of doing home economics and learning how to lay out a kitchen, I had been taught about how to do my taxes, how to have, you know, successful relationships. And I don't just mean romantic relationships. And so that includes a lot of really productive, healthy communication. And I'd been taught about sex properly. 
I, I would feel far more equipped as an adult than I did when I left school at 18. Um, and I don't think we are prepared enough um, for relationships, as we've discussed, for love. I mean, we chatted about how we all have a quite a stereotypical, or the majority of us have quite a stereotypical view of love. Um, I know particularly in the Western world and pop culture and the media doesn't help in any of that. And if we were actually given tools and and we were able to practice this language in order to learn it, we would be a lot more proficient rather than just being literate. And that's a massive difference. So I do want to loop back to something that you said, which just piqued my interest greatly, which was around the sexual chemistry versus harmony. And I was wondering about the difference between attraction and chemistry, if maybe you could start there and uh, go on to the sexual chemistry versus harmony. I'm not sure if they're the different concepts or the same. Sure. Uh, well, sexual chemistry, and uh, I actually jotted a note here as you were talking about sex fizzes out in long-term relationships. You know, one of the things that I invite people to do before any of these is to ask themselves and their partners, even when you're dating each other, just ask um, from one another, what is the role of sex? For you and what is the meaning of sex for you and these are two different things right and another area of huge misunderstanding is the actual sex so our good colleague um, Esther Perel talks about sex is a space that you go to is not a uh, thing that you do and um, so that's one concept that we can think about sex that way to me there are two different things first of all sex is not that lovemaking, spiritual thing, you know, you know, whatever for the rest of eternity that you connect with somebody. And that's not how it is. That's another misconception. I always tell people sex is a transactional act. And they look at me as if, oh, my God, this woman is crazy. Hmm. But it is. We don't open our mouth without having an expectation from the other person. We do not look at people. We do not uh, present ourselves. We don't do anything in life without expecting something in return. That is us, way of communicating. Communication is that. Communication, you put something out there, you get something in return. Um, so it could be intentional. It could be um, not even intentional, um, which is for many people. But if the people really want to be honest with, it, with themselves and with other people around them, just go deep and explore to see what is the meaning of sex for you. So it could be connection. It could be um, a certain feeling that it gives you. So what is that meaning and the role of it? I want to keep the person in the relationship. I want to be a good spouse. I want to uh, have the power. I want to be loved. I want to, what is that? And during the course of your life, I invite you to think about that. You know, the listeners, I want them to, Think about how this changed. Has it changed? Uh, so I think th these are the things that, so before we even get to attraction and sex and all of that, I think it would be really important to define the role and meaning of sex for each of us. So that's one. The other one is what is sex? Many people, when we talk about sex, they think about the act of sex. But then if you think about selling a toothpaste, um, I see that the, at a lot of branding um, committees, just because of my other hat that I wear. And, um, and it's really interesting. 
the first thing that they say, well, make this advertisement sexy. And I'm sitting there as a person who works in this field thinking, what do you mean? Do you want the person to be naked as they brush their teeth? Do you want them to do like, so sex means different things to different people. So it's really important that, you know, take away what it means to you and make sure that you're fluent in putting it across to the person who is going to actually get engaged with you in that level. That would be one thing. The other thing is over a period of time, sexual chemistry exists in most of the couples who believe in the mentality of falling in love. And when they say falling in love, when you really go back to their relation, to the beginning of the relationship, what they're talking about is that Eros love, meaning one of the nine versions of love that, well, you know, we couldn't really get our hands off of each other. It was so good, you know, um, was, um, I don't know, like a volcano. Um, it is actually like a volcano. Even on, you know, third grade, in many countries, you experiment with volcanoes, right? So you bring the actual chemical things together, you put them on fire, and then it bursts and done, fizzles out. Dr. Helen Fisher, good colleague of ours, um, had extensive research to show that this type of love, this, this type of chemistry, this type of infatuation will go away uh, on average in two years between couples. Then what are we supposed to do, right? So one of the things that I learned over the years is that that chemistry, if you had it, it's wonderful. You just need to keep an eye on it intentionally so that you cultivate elements that could help you to trans, uh, transfer that from chemistry to harmony. So that's for those couples, and I'll talk to harmony um, in, a, in a bit. And then for couples who are attracted to one another, as I mentioned, they like to be touched by the other person. They like to be kissed or kiss the other person. So um, they, they have that kind of in them, but then uh, they feel like, well, we are not uh, impulsive about going and rip each other's clothes off. And when I look at him across the room, I really don't have that urge to go and jump on him or her or, you know, or, you know, whoever that you're in a relationship with um, in your partnership. So it's really um, interesting. And then they come to my office, uh, some people, and then when I do all the assessments, everything is going just fine. The only problem they have is that they heard that orgasms should be earth shattering. Orgasms should be dangling from chandeliers and um, doing different positions and being involved in different positions. And uh, after a sexual encounter, you should be so amazed and amused and mystified and all that. And that is not true. We don't have a research to show that thriving couples over long-term partnerships, any of those experiences are you know, existing for them over a long period of time. So one of the things that becomes here is in a sexual partnership, going back to what you mentioned, Katriona, that you know, from um, that education around sexuality and what I call from literacy to fluency is just listen. So you need to have training sessions, training sex exercises, as I call, you know, I call them that for my couples, every six months to sit together and say, hey, you know, this is our training sex exercise session. 
when I do this, I turn myself on. These are the things that I turn myself on with. And if you pay attention to my language, I don't say these are the things that you turn me on by. I say I turn myself on because most of this is self-stimulated. And if we don't know what is it that we can turn ourselves on with and we can get ourselves excited and aroused by, there's no way we can communicate it with uh, our partners. And uh, it's just a guessing game. Sometimes they touch the right spot at the right time and then that works. Sometimes they touch the same spot uh, and the timing is not right or, you know, I'm not in the mood or, you know, whatnot, it's not going to work. So then they are left with mixed messages and then it goes down, down that uh, route of um, deterioration of, over time. So what I mean by sexual chemistry is that chemistry is left to chances and harmony is all about choices you say something you move a certain way I move a certain way and um, so that harmony for people who know music like you know one tune I listen I respond so we complement each other in this dance we don't show up the same way exact the same exact way but we complement each other so that's the best way I can describe it and I've had couples who come to me and said chemistry is non-existent we have nothing left and is this doable we have no sexual connection and through attunement through um, the concept of sexual harmony they change their whole lens and uh, they could cultivate a beautiful beautiful sexual relationship and what would you say to to your client or your clients if it was a couple who say to you, I don't really think I've ever desired him or her, you know, it was, they were good on paper. They ticked the boxes. It was what my family wanted. Um, but I don't really feel I've ever had that chemistry because I know this is the one thing that we cannot create. It, we cannot magic it up out of anywhere. I completely agree with you. Sexual attraction is not going to be um, created. Two things in my clinical work are learned are the most difficult ones. And if anybody out there is hearing this and has a solution, please come forward. One is the sexual attraction and the other one, that desirability uh, that you talked about, Katriona. And then the other one is self-esteem. You can help people with these two, but I haven't seen them done like eradicate any of these issues. Now, going back to those clients that you talked about, obviously in certain countries that are working and even, you know, like in the US. So one of the things that happen is that, yes, it either their families choose for them or uh, they choose based on the necessities of the time in that moment in time, because at the end of the day, marriage is a social legal contract. So some people, people have different reasons for getting married to different people. Um, And then over a period of time, at that moment in time, sexual uh, attraction or connection was not a priority. And now they find themselves in a place that um, is pretty hard for them to move on without it. One of the things that, well, I've seen extremes of it. I've had couples that I actually helped them to get to the position to have the actual act of sex with each other But then every single time after they had sex, the woman threw up. 
So mentally, intellectually, socially, she brought herself on to have sex with her husband. Um, and the act of sex, so to speak, happened, but her body rejected him big time. And in that scenario, it was a little bit complicated. As I say, it's, it was an extreme, but um, the person was, was the person who reminded her of an abuser in the past. And there was nothing we could do. He smelled like him. He looked like him. His accent was like him. So it was pretty, it, it was a very um, impossible situation for them. And then um, my job then became to help them separate because it wasn't going to work for them in that partnership. Um, in other scenarios, when, when couples come, you know, you can tap into um, duty some people say, well, this is, you know, this is a marriage. Sex comes as a part of my uh, responsibility here. I'm going to please myself. I'm going to, give, we are going to please her, but there is no mutual act of sexual interaction between, between us. That's an agreed stance for them. Some couples um, open their relationships if they can't really cultivate that sexual um connection between between the two of them and it works for them some couples do that it does not work for them so every couple is really different when we talk about what to tell these people the other one is an act of compassion but for in the most part of these if you tap into the social construct of um attraction I find that some progress can, can be made. Um, and many people who do not want to be sexual with each other, uh, interestingly enough, the respect part of the relationship, I would examine and I would examine very closely. They either have too much respect for each other or too little. That's very interesting. That's very, very interesting. And I think that, in the work that I've done in my career with with couples, I would say that 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 really stands out as well. Too much, which I think will surprise some people, or too little respect for one another is a definite turn off. You know. So if we've got if we've got a couple um, that you know they they want to work on the connection, we know that different levels or different interests in sex and desire and arousal are is the biggest difficulty that couples face. Um, I know that it's the number one thing that brings couples to see me as a sex therapist. And I also know that the majority of the time, sex is not the problem. Sex is what is showing us that there is a problem. And what's going on in the relationship is where actually we need to start the work. And my standard line to couples, you know, if I hear that they're really at ends, um, at odds with one another and they're, they're kind of at their wit's end and they're in conflict. It's you, how on earth can you make love if you're constantly at war? And sex then is a performance. It's, it's about an outcome and achieving that outcome. And it's something, as you said, dutiful, we have to do. And for you and I, I know that, and I know for so many of our colleagues, and we, we speak about how sex should be about pleasure and, you know, um, permission to to experience it and to explore it and 
one of the things that I'd love to hear from you, because I know that you've done extensive work with different groups of people across the world, is how is 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 pleasure perceived differently in different cultures? I mean, you spoke at the very start of this discussion about the word love means different things in different cultures. What about the word and the experience of pleasure? These are very interesting questions, uh, Katriona. So uh, first of all, World Sexual Health Day has a day, um, I mean, has a celebration every year with this specific theme. This past year, I mean, last month, we celebrated, last September, we celebrated a whole day around sexual pleasure. And we talked about how race, ethnicity, uh, culture, uh, policies, media, um, social factors, different sociopolitical and personal factors impacted. Now to answer your question, uh, and on that note, uh, the video is online. Um, if you look for World Sexual Health Day Pleasure at Stanford University, I think you will be able to see that. Um, at least most of the videos should be there. One of the things that I have to point out here is that's another mentality that we have that we were taught in that um, sex should be in pursuit of pleasure. I respectfully disagree with that because I think at least for most of my clients who are from different surroundings, different contexts, social cultural contexts, um, pleasure is not on top of their mind. Pleasure is not something, of course you do it and if it doesn't feel good, you might not want to do it again. But it's not, um, it's like eating, you know, some people eat for the pleasure of it. Some people eat to nurture their bodies. Some people eat because they have to. Some people eat because they just want to get on with it and put something in the body and carry on with life. Um, it's like that. Um, or some people want to eat because they want to socialize over it. So for sex, I think that's another thing that, you know, uh, I think for all the colleagues who are listening to this, I really highly invite everybody to think about pleasure from the perspective of the client. And uh, I personally check with them to see if there is a word describing pleasure, not only sexual pleasure, describing pleasure in their language, mother tongue language, um, and the perception of pleasure since they were growing up, for example, in some languages, there is not a specific, when we say pleasure in English, mostly we talk about um, very closely, we talk about sexual pleasure, very closely. But if we talk about pleasure in so many, at least the languages that I speak, it's a very, um, it's mostly linked to food, it's mostly linked to an experience in life, in general, so these are the these are the initial nuanced differences that we have with some clients that we see, especially cross culturally. That's one. The other one is who owns your pleasure. So in many of the cultures, if you talk to people, they say, "Well, don't loot, don't laugh too hard today. You might be crying tomorrow, or don't indulge in this. Tomorrow you're going to pay for it." You know. So even in a joking manner, even in a like anything that. Um, has any sign of self-indulgence or pleasure, it's as if there is a sign that you need to be aware of. There is a sin to be attached to it. Um, so these are the ones that I would love to explore with my clients when they talk about pleasure. Who owns your pleasure? What were the messages that you received um, in jokes that were shared when you were growing up, in um, 
sayings, in proverbs, in poetry, anything that were surrounding you as you were growing up? And how was that experienced and expressed in the family of origin? Uh, when you loved, for example, if you were licking on that ice cream and you really loved it, who else did know about it? Did you articulate it? So, you know, so I will take sex out of it, sexual pleasure. And I try to really get to the depth of some kind of shared understanding in the room with my clients as what is it that we're even talking about here? You know, I don't want to kind of project my own assumptions, so to speak. And I personally find it helpful because then they will realize as how um, expressive they are regarding their pleasure, how they allow themselves to experience, you know, pleasure. And actually, I can give you an example. About 17 years ago, I was in England. I had a client, very handsome man, very handsome man, came into my office, very successful in getting women to date him. Very good dating, you know, uh, talent and everything. Um, as soon as he became a little bit closer to people and something became so like good, he, you know, rejected the women and walked out. Now, we can sit here and say this is avoidant attachment style. This is, you know, like ambivalent attachment style. We can talk about um, systemic influencers, all of that. One thing that came to my mind in that, in that session was I asked him to bring something that he really likes to eat, like a guilty pleasure to the room, the next session. So he brought a little chocolate cake and I asked him to eat it in front of me. He started eating and, after, and, as, and, then, and then I asked him to express um, his pleasure as he was eating it. So he was eating it. I said, mm, this is so good. This is so good. And spoon by spoon, little by little, little by little, it got like really, he got into it. And then after a while, he pushed it away and said, oh my God, this is so good. As he was saying, this is so good. He pushed the plate away. And I showed him, this is exactly what he was doing with women that he was dating. So when the concept of pleasure became overbearing for him, something that is so good, he pushed it away. And that opened the conversation for us to talk about uh, the ruptures that have never been repaired in his life. That, you know, something that was really good and was taken away from him. And now the distrust that he has towards relationships. So I think... If we get entangled in something that is presented to us in the room, we might not be able to do deep work and really transform clients, that state of doing versus being, uh, versus if we really get into get in there with them, into their world, and see what is it that they're actually talking about. Um, I find it fascinating. So I mean, you're you're speaking to to learning learning the language with them, with our clients. I feel that that's what you're speaking to. It's you're learning to speak their language, and I mean, what a what a fantastic example for you to share with us. Because, I mean, yes, while you were talking about his 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 ability to get into relationships and ex be expert at dating, but then push women away. I mean, my alarm bells are like, oh yeah, he's got an ambivalent attachment style, of course. But the way that you, you focused on pleasure 
as as a an experience for him and as you said you know we get pleasure from eating we get pleasure from activities we get pleasure from doing things with people that we love spending time with we get pleasure from sex um it was so interesting to hear how obviously as one therapist to another how you used pleasure in the room to learn his language and i mean i just wish i could keep talking to you for you know the rest the rest of my evening the rest of your morning but I I know that we can continue having these conversations, Sarah, and I guess we will probably be having many more conversations, I hope, um, in the future. But to just end off, I like to ask all of my guests, what is the most surprising thing that you've learned since you've been working in the field, in the topic of love in particular? One is how much I don't know. Every day I'm reminded, every, every day I'm reminded, oh my God, how much more there is that I don't know. And uh, the surprising, pleasant, surprising part of it is how, how did I become so privileged for many people who trust me with the inner side of themselves, their relationships and that is an everyday point of surprise, astonishment, and gratitude for me. Mm, I, th- I think I echo that actually. And I always ask, I, I don't include these, this question when I send it out to my guests, because I really like to hear from, from the wonderful people I get to speak to about that kind of, I want to take you by surprise a little bit with this question to see what immediately comes to your mind. And those, those are two very, very interesting points that I think I feel about the work that I do as well. How can people reach out to you and where can they find, find your amazing work? I know you've obviously mentioned the website for um, the relationship panoramic um, already and, and where else can people reach you and see the work that you're doing? Well, I think if um, uh, on my website, um, it's www.sara-nasarzadeh.com. On the first page, there is an option for people to join the community as member of publics or professionals. That is the most reliable way because I send two or three newsletters a year with all the news and tips and everything. So they will definitely receive that. But for colleagues, I'm on LinkedIn under my own name. And I will be happy to connect with colleagues there and with everybody that is, you know, I'm everywhere, really. I'm on Facebook, I'm on Instagram. And uh, yeah, so I'm regularly post about events and things that are going on. But if they're particularly interested to receive information, I think the most reliable way is through that um, joining the community so that I make sure that they receive um, any upcoming courses or books or stuff that come out that they might help you know find helpful um and i'll link i'll link all of those in the show notes so that people can find you and reach out to you sarah thank you for your time um and your wisdoms um and you know your lessons because i have learned a fortune from you in the time that i've known you in working with you one-on-one in listening to you in, in, you know, workshops at global conferences and even just from our discussion today. And like I said, I have no doubt that we will be speaking again in another episode on this podcast in, in time to come. I look forward to it. It's always a pleasure. This episode was sponsored by Desire. 
Desir believes that sexual health is not just about the latest sex toy, but about using products to improve one's overall sexual health and well-being. For 15% off, use the code for a friend. And if you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to this podcast and continue learning about some incredible and fascinating topics that we need to know more and talk more about. You can subscribe and follow this podcast on your favorite platform. And if you've enjoyed this episode, I'd be grateful if you would rate and review it. Do you have a question you'd like to ask for a friend? Reach out to me via my website or Instagram, and I'll be sure to include it in an upcoming episode.